welcome to Plant Crimes, a podcast where we explore leafy crimes and misdemeanors. I'm your host, Ellen Earhart. Today, I want to talk about an app that I'm obsessed with called iNaturalist. I use it mainly for identifying plants and bugs. It's a citizen science app. You take a picture of a plant or animal and then tag its date, time, and location. The app analyzes the pictures, and it works remarkably well, so even if you don't know what you took a picture of, it can probably tell you. If the app can't immediately get it, there are experts who hang around and will help you with your IDs. Once you know what you have, you can add your findings to relevant research projects. Our first guest today belongs to an organization that uses iNaturalist to document Ohio wildlife. My name is Constance Hosman, and I'm the executive director of the Ohio Biological Survey. Tell me a little bit about your organization. OBS, we are a small nonprofit. We help collect and publish and disseminate scientific data and observations and survey and research from across the state. How does OBS use iNaturalist? In 2011, my predecessor at OBS started the Ohio BioBlitz project in iNaturalist. And iNaturalist is a really great forum. It's free and open and accessible. So long as you have a phone that can download the app, either Android or iPhone, you can use the camera and take a picture, you're set. And what's really great about iNaturalist is that even though you may not be an expert in the butterfly you're taking a picture of or the plant you're taking a picture of, the mushroom, it's just really interesting to you. There's a fascinating network of, of resources and professionals and other scientists that will help you identify that particular picture. So it's a great feedback and learning mechanism to get people who otherwise may not be engaged in the natural world to see and appreciate those unknown things in their backyard or in their neighborhoods or in their parks. What's the most fun thing that anyone's ever found during a bio blitz? Everything and anything anybody wants to contribute. So like I said, it had started in 2011, and we are now up over 1.1 million observations, 15,429 species. Wow. So it's a large project. It's ongoing, and people are constantly contributing new records. Occasionally, a bio blitz is a defined point in time. Like there are certain kinds of communities or parks that may say, we're going to have a 24-hour bioblitz. And they collect a whole bunch of people with various expertise to come on to that area and be able to just identify everything present. This Ohio-based project is just an ongoing open for everybody to contribute. Here's Adam Wells, an environmental journalist from South Africa who writes for Yale Environment 360. He also enjoys iNaturalist. I recently joined iNaturalist and I've become super enthusiastic. Finally found a home for all my really bad photographs of wild species that I've taken all over the world just to sort of remind myself that I'd seen them or to identify them later. You know, I have these thousands of really bad photographs on my system that I now have a place to put and it's very satisfying. I have a rubbish picture of a bird that I took in California 15 years ago or something. I put it on iNaturalist and I get a sense of satisfaction that now it's logged in this database. Now some scientists will hopefully one day along with all the other 
observations of this species, be able to tell, you know, how it's doing or how things have changed for that species over time. And I get this sort of little ticker, you know, you have now identified 834 species and your iNaturalist or whatever it is. And it's very satisfying. So it's a sort of a, you know, in many ways, it's a, a win-win, right? All these observers get to play this fun online game. They get to learn more about species. I get to take I know nothing about plants personally. I'm not a botanist really, but I live in one of the most botanically rich parts of the world, which is the Cape Flora here. And since I joined iNaturalist, I can walk around take random pictures of beautiful little flowers that I find out in the felt and within maybe a few minutes or maybe a few hours, some expert will come along and identify that and tell me what that flower is. And I'm actually learning flowers for the first time in my life through iNaturalist, uh, having been a bird and a reptile person mostly my whole life. So these are great tools. Um, they're great for scientists and they're great for the users. But unfortunately, there's a potential disadvantage to mapping live animals and plants in the wild. When I was volunteering at a habitat restoration site last fall, I got to talking to an orchid expert about my enthusiasm for the app. He says he doesn't tag the location of any of his finds on iNaturalist because he's concerned about other people coming across them and poaching the orchids. I decided to look further into this to see the steps that iNaturalist has taken to prevent situations like the one our orchid enthusiast was worried about. Wells worries about people using the app for nefarious purposes, too. He's found examples of people locating rare South African succulents with tools like pages from a digital archive of museum specimens named JSTOR Global Plants and photos and information from the citizen science website iSpot. It's going to save them a heck of a lot of time to get hold of these rare species, either for themselves if they're collectors or they're traders, smugglers, to go out and find these species and spurt them off to market. And we've had exactly that situation unfold here in South Africa more than once. If you really wanted to become an expert in the rare succulent plants of South Africa, which are spectacular and very highly sought after in the world of collectors, we have an extraordinary diversity of succulent plants in South Africa. We have the most diverse semi-arid areas and arid areas in the world down here. And we have hundreds of plant species that only occur in tiny little areas in giant drylands, as it were. If you had to try and get a good knowledge of where all these rare species were, that, that's a lifetime of work. That's a lifetime of wandering around thousands and thousands and thousands of square miles of southern Africa. But now, because you have access to one of these online databases, you can draw on the labor, essentially, of thousands of volunteers who've gone out and found these species for you. <laughs> so we've had criminals collating data from these types of databases, as well as academic journals and so on and mapping themselves a route around southern Africa where they can go and collect thousands of rare plants to the value of tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in two weeks or three weeks. In that sense, it makes life for criminals, smugglers of rare species a lot easier. Like Wells and my orchid-loving friends, the creators of these kinds of publicly published data sets have started thinking about these issues. Scientists have fierce debates about who can be allowed to access location data. 
say you describe a new species, you find a new plant that hasn't been described in the scientific literature before, you go ahead, you publish an article, you describe this new plant. Now, a lot of scientists feel that description should include its location data, because that's what you've always done, and that, that's part of the description, and that's a very valuable piece of information. Where did you find this new species? It's part of the description. Other scientists feel, well, with the danger that we're having now of these collectors who often get in there super fast and can wipe out rare species or really substantially damage their populations in the wild, we shouldn't be saying where we found these things. We should be describing species without their location data. And quite a few people have done that. They have described species without location data. But then you run into all sorts of questions like, okay, so who has access to that location data? For how long are they going to keep that obscure? Are we never going to know where, you know, this plant comes from? Or is it just going to be shared among a certain group of people who are considered trusted by the original finder of these things. And then does that create a sort of weird academic elitism with a sort of in-crowd versus an out-crowd? You get to know where I found my latest new species, but uh, you don't because you haven't quite made it up. You're lower down the food chain. And so there's been a lot of that. And, you know, academics can get very jealous of each other and have these ridiculous arguments about things. And I've seen a bit of that. There's a lot of ego and and ridiculousness instead of coming up with a, a solution. And I'm sure some smart person could come up with a solution where you can somehow keep this location data in a space where it's more likely to be accessed by the people who really need to know it and that it doesn't get lost because that's, of course, another potential problem. And yet at the same time keeps it away from the criminals. Again, the internet being what it is, you might think you're telling your trusted buddy, you know, where this thing was. But who knows? Maybe a plant collector will come along and get them drunk or pay them, or maybe they want to brag that they know where this thing is too, and before you know it, it's gone. And citizen science apps like my favorite, iNaturalist, have developed an obscure feature to hide sensitive species. Here's Kinichi Ueda, the co-founder and co-director of iNaturalist. The need for potentially obscuring records is something that we've thought about basically from the beginning of INET, but I think we only implemented the obscure feature, I think, sometime around 2010 or so. But it was basically at the behest of some folks in the reptile and amphibian community when we started doing some directed outreach towards them to solicit more records of reptiles and amphibians on the site. And a lot of people there are understandably extremely concerned about the disclosure of locations of populations due to poaching. So that was when we started doing coordinate obscuration of observations. When you enter a species into iNaturalist, you can choose to make the location open, obscured, or private. If you choose to obscure, iNaturalist creates a rectangle around your observation and the true location is hidden. We don't necessarily want to hide information. The whole point of iNaturalist is to share and distribute information. So the idea of not doing that was kind of antithetical to the purpose of the entire endeavor. But obviously there are reasons to do so. So we wanted to strike some kind of a balance where we were at least giving some indication of location so that people weren't just sort of like completely at a loss as to where generally something might have been seen. Sort of the level of specificity that we wanted was something where you might get regional sense, maybe somewhere in the Bay Area, but not as coarse as like somewhere in California someone saw 
this. So initially, we chose a system in which the coordinates displayed were a random location within a particular radius of the true location. So similar to what we have now, where on a map, on a public-facing map, you'll see that randomly chosen location instead of the true coordinates. And the radius of that area that we chose was at a regional scale. You could get a sense for where it was, but maybe not enough detail to go to the exact location of where the original coordinates were. Eventually, we realized that radius-based approach meant that if you were always viewing the same thing in the same place, like, say, your backyard, you basically just made a big circle on the map with your backyard in the exact center of it, <laughs> sort of defeated the purpose of obscuration. So that was when we switched to our current system of choosing a random location within a grid cell on the map. So instead of choosing a location within a radius where the center is the true location, there's no really relation between the publicly displayed location and the, the true location, except for it's somewhere within that degree grid cell. But the user is not the only person who can decide that an observation needs to be hidden. If a species is on the International Union for Conservation of Nature list, or IUCN, they obscure automatically, with some exceptions. We can also turn that off for certain taxa. You can say, we've imported a status from the IUCN. We'll keep that status so that we can display a message that says, the IUCN thinks that Coast Red was endangered, but we'll make an editorial decision and say, like, this doesn't actually need to be obscured because it's a giant tree that is probably not threatened. But that does get us into some gray semantic areas in which when we are making a decision about what should and shouldn't be obscured. And part of that is a problem with conservation statuses in general. Almost all conservation statuses are, they're not binary, but they're sort of one axis, right? So the IUCN red list is like, is it vulnerable? Is it endangered or critically endangered or near extinction? But the ratings almost never come with data about why it gets that status. Coast redwoods are on that list because they're massively threatened by habitat destruction and climate change. Poaching happens, but that's probably not a serious threat to the population as a whole or the species as a whole. Whereas with other species, like some super micro-endemic orchid in Costa Rica, collection might be a serious threat. A little bit of extra collection pressure might wipe it out or seriously impact the species. But the statuses that we incorporate into our system almost never incorporate data like that that we could use and say, this is actually threatened by poaching and thus we should turn on the system. Or like, this isn't threatened by poaching, but it is threatened by climate change, so we should turn off obscuration. What we would love, but almost no one does and maybe never will do, is for status-granting organizations like the IUCN or California Native Plant Society to consider whether or not location disclosure actually threatens the taxon, which is a tricky thing to do, but the organizations that pay attention to this kind of information are positioned to do in a much better way than we at iNaturalist are. To say, you know, does Leia Farinosa, it is threatened by poaching. Is it threatened by coordinate disclosure? That's tougher because it's like redwoods. It's widely distributed. It's easy to find. Its locations are pretty well known. So you can make an argument that publishing the locations of its populations are not going to make much of a difference to poaching. Or the CNPS could take a different stance and say, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's threatened by poaching, so any coordinate disclosure is going to negatively impact the species. And if organizations like that could make declarations like that, that would help us out a lot, because we could just say, like, look, we don't want to make these editorial decisions, so the CNPS has made this decision. We'll follow their opinion. Making the decisions around what should and shouldn't be obscured is not easy and maybe shouldn't just be in the hands of these apps, scientists, and the people submitting their own observations. On the other hand, maybe it's not such a bad thing when people know the location of a species, especially when it's obvious that poaching is not the main threat. 
I actually, there's a species of gladiolus, a very beautiful flower. Um, we have a lot of gladiolus species in the Cape Famous. I have a species of gladiolus that's last known site on planet Earth only occurs in one place, less than a mile from my house here in Cape Town. And there is a sort of an in-crowd of botanists who know where this one tiny little site is, where this beautiful gladiolus grows. But it's right on the edge of an expanding neighborhood, and its habitat has been completely destroyed by invasive alien Australian acacia species. And this plant is going to get neglected to death, I think. It's going to go extinct, because not enough people know where it is, and not enough people care. And that's happening a mile from where I'm sitting talking to you right now. So, you know, there's, this is not an easy, this is not an easy, there's no one size fits all answer to this stuff. And, and like, like all conservation, everything is context specific. It's time specific. It's place specific. It's context specific in terms of ecology. It's context specific in terms of human psychology, of politics, economics, and all of that sort of stuff. There's no one size fits all answer. So anybody who comes with a one size fits all answer is immediately discrediting themselves. Thanks for tuning in. This week, I have a little mini episode here. It's a story that I investigated, but I couldn't really turn into a full episode. And so I asked my friend Nikki to come talk about it. She is a brilliant video producer at Wirecutter. I highly recommend checking out her work. Here she is. Hi, everybody. My name is Nikki Jung. I am Ellen's friend slash coworker. And I had a question about plants on reality shows or plants on television in general. I was just wondering who takes care of them because plants are usually pretty high maintenance and the ones that they choose for these shows are typically fiddly figs, which are so high maintenance. Like I can't even take care of one in my own house, let alone a chaotic production studio. Yes, in Queer Eye especially, Bobby loves using fiddly figs. And in my experience and the experiences of my Reddit plant community, if you move them even a little bit, they drop all their leaves and they have to grow new ones because their leaves are so big and high maintenance that it's worth it just to drop all the leaves versus to turn them. (laughs) And so I was like, what happens to these beautiful rooms where Bobby has left all of these fiddly figs after the show ends. And also, in Love is Blind, they also had beautiful fiddly figs, huge ones. And I was like, what happened to those? Yeah, like, who the heck is taking care of them? I haven't watched Love is Blind, but I imagine it's kind of your typical reality show fair where a bunch of hot people live in a house together, right? So do they have a chore wheel? I don't I don't know who <laughs> takes care of them when they're there, right? Okay, I found the answer to that question, at least on the Today Show. 
But do you want to go into the Queer Eye thing a little bit more? Because I have some information on that, even though it isn't a lot. Yeah, dude, tell me. Like, I stay up at night wondering how those plants are doing. Like, there's there's some contestants where I'm like, like, you're a parent. You would take care of this. But then there's some teens. And I know that as a teen, I just did not have the capacity and the planning to take care of plants. I would, like, leave for days or not understand what was going on. So... Yeah, I would love an update on all of the plants or just a general idea of what happens to them after the shows. Okay, so we do you remember Jess from Queer Eye? Yes, she's my favorite. She's like the Paramore fan, the teen black lesbian who learned to love herself, right? Yes. Did she answer you on Instagram? She did not. I reached out to her on several social media sites and she did not respond, which is unfortunate. But she posted a small fiddly fig about okay. her like plant life journey. So Bobby definitely gave her several large fiddly figs in season three of Queer Eye. And then this year she had a small one. Okay, so what are you thinking? Are you thinking that she became a plant lover and bought another fiddle leaf fig? Or can you propagate those guys? Oh, she may have propagated it. But I figured that the original ones had all their leaves fall off, like we anticipated. And then she kind of gave up on them and then picked them back up this year. Okay. And bought a new one. I I can totally see that happening. Yeah, I wonder, did she move from the apartment that Bobby renovated for her? I'm wondering if we could, like, track in the background and go full conspiracy with this. See what happens to all the plants. That's a good question. I think she might have moved. Let me see. Yeah, was that season in Philadelphia? I, I forget. I think so. Let me do. It's funny. I've never been on this side of the interview. I'm usually doing an interview. So I feel, I feel this feels weird. (laughs) I think you're not supposed to be Googling during an interview, but. Don't worry. Uh... I do that. Okay. Jones Barbecue is in Kansas City, Kansas. So she was in Kansas. Mm, okay. Yeah, I remember. I think they're the same season. She might have moved because she, she has a girlfriend now. Yes. So I wonder if they moved to be together. I don't I don't know. I, I don't know her whereabouts, but I know she's super active on Instagram. Yes. I can't tell based on her Instagram where she is now. Wait just a second. Let me log into Instagram and see if she's tagging her location. Okay, she's tagging from Philadelphia. Okay, that's why I thought she was from Philadelphia because my subconscious saw that she's from, she's like, you know, tagging Philadelphia. Yeah, so she probably moved from Kansas City to Philadelphia, and it's a mystery of what happened to the fiddly figs that she got in Kansas City. Okay. 
but she has a small one now. That's cool. Maybe she bought it and thought of Bobby. Yes. Okay, and then I also got some general information about what happens to plants after shows. I talked to Neil Mills, who's an assistant professor at the Department of Theater and Drama in the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Okay. And they worked on the Today Show. Okay. They said that on the Today Show, they had an entire team dedicated to creating any plant arrangements that were needed and that live plants were typically thrown away or taken home by a member of the cast or production and fake plants went back into storage. Hmm, that's interesting. In, in our videos at Wirecutter, we use a lot of plants because we have that millennial aesthetic. So, of course, we have your monstera, we have snake plants, we have little succulents, and we take care of them. The photographers and the video people and some of the staff at Wirecutter just take turns watering and I have taken home a lot of plants before, so maybe that's just kind of an unspoken industry norm. Because we pretty much consider the plants props, too. So I guess that's the first job with plants that I've had. So I don't know. But maybe that's an unspoken rule of production companies slash studios. What happened to the plants during the pandemic? I don't know, Ellen. That's making me sad. <laughs> I think that some people came in and brought them home. I think Leslie, you know, Leslie from the kitchen team, a lot of them were her plants that she would water and take care of. So I think she brought some of them home. I actually was in studio right before I came back to California. So I was there in September. We started quarantining and not going to office in March. When I was there in September, I don't remember an overwhelming feeling of sadness from the plants, just from other stuff. So I think that someone rescued the plants because there weren't dead plants all over the place. I'm pretty certain that someone rescued them. I think Leslie rescued them. Our angel, Leslie Stockton, I love her. <laughs> but it all happened so fast where we started working from home. So nobody had like a real plant plan. We, we didn't have a plan for anything, so... I'm glad the plants at least, I think, made it out alive. I think Leslie took them back to her apartment. Okay, so our conclusion is that the plants kind of go under the radar and someone probably chooses to take care of them, unless it's a really fancy show like the Today Show, where they have presumably the landscaping team create plant arrangements. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> If you're like a PA or something on that show, maybe you get to take home some free plants. Yeah, in chiller places like Wirecutter, it's kind of whoever will take care of the plants. That's what happens to them. Yeah, I mean, I loved our little studio. Uh, we kind of treated it like our own living room slash living space. We would go down there. Don't tell my boss. We would watch like a ton of Netflix and just like water the plants. It was nice. Very nice. Yeah, I mean, literally, I was once late to a party after work because I fell asleep on the prop bed in the studio. <laughs> and instead of waking me up to go to the party with all of my coworkers, people took videos of me. I don't know. And then they were like, you're late. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> nobody woke me up. <laughs> I miss the plants. I miss my friends. So 
the other conclusion is that Bobby probably shouldn't give everyone fiddly figs on Queer Eye, even though it's his oh, favorite yeah. plants. There are so many aesthetically pleasing, low-maintenance plants. Yeah, I wonder how much input Bobby asks for when he designs their house. If he asks, what's your plant competency level or like how much do you like plants? Because he's come up with beautiful plant arrangements. I remember there was a young activist, I think, on the most recent season, like a young political activist, and he made an herb garden on her porch. Oh, that's so cute. I feel like he's done a living wall or something like that. Maybe it was in the same episode, but yeah, I wonder if he leaves care instructions or at least tells them what kind of plant everything is so they can look it up themselves. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Maybe a Queer Eye contestant will reach out to you and tell you eventually. Yeah, that Um, would be great. If anyone's listening to this who has connections to Queer Eye, hit me up. Yeah, and maybe Bobby himself can come out of the woodwork and be like, hey, this is what I do. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks to Nikki for talking to me, and thanks to Daniela Bly and Zara Stone for providing feedback on this episode. Thank you for listening, and if you use iNaturalist, happy plant finding!